0: Pretty good songs there, huh? Some of them at least. Um, which Which one's your favorite love song out of that montage? You got any favorites in the room? <laughs> Taylor, Taylor Swift, yeah. You know, my. Uh, I think my favorite love song is I'll Be by Edwin McCain. Anyone know that one? It's really, really over the top and ridiculous, but uh, pretty awesome. I love that saxophone in there. Um, but yeah, man, love songs. I, I feel like that's probably... What, half of the songs that are out there? Um, Super, super common. And I think the reason for that is because if there's one thing that pretty much interests everybody in the world, like it doesn't matter race or religious background, uh, part of the world you live in, whatever it may be, everybody is interested in love. Um, Everybody is interested in this process of finding a person, falling in love with them, dating, marriage, all, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I think it's, it's something that really captures our minds, it captures our hearts, and so uh, naturally it's something that people love to write songs about. And you know, not only is it universally interesting, but uh, it's something that really resonates with us deeply. I know that this is the kind of thing that it, most people think about probably on a daily basis. Um, some of you maybe more than others, but regardless, I know that this is an important theme uh, for pretty much everybody, and God knows that too. And, uh, because of that, there's actually an entire book of the Bible that is devoted to this topic, and it is called Song of Songs, or, uh, some of you might know it as Song of Solomon. You can call it either one. Uh, If you flip to your Bible, it's actually going to be, like, pretty much in the middle. It's a tiny little book. It's only about eight chapters, and, uh... The reason why some people call it Song of Songs and some people call it Song of Solomon is really just because of verse 1. It says the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. So some people decided they would title it Song of Songs. Some people decided that they would title it uh, Song of Solomon. But I will tell you that this book is probably the juiciest book in the Bible. Um, it, it's, got, it's got a lot of uh, colorful language in it, we'll say, um, Matter of fact, there were, uh, in some Jewish circles, women were prohibited from reading this book entirely, and men, uh, boys weren't allowed to read it. You weren't allowed to read it until you became a man, uh, because there would be some... Uh, too much, I guess, lust or whatever that it it could inflame within you, and uh, it's been a book that scared people a lot, and and that's not only within Judaism, but also uh, within Christianity. I think that this is a book that sometimes kind of scares people. They don't really want to get into it because, uh, unfortunately, I think in the church sometimes we have this terrible misunderstanding and and almost a a terrible fear of sex, um, there's this idea that sex is kind of dirty and nasty and shameful, so like we don't really want to talk about it and it makes us feel icky and gross and uncomfortable. And uh, yeah, so it's the perfect thing to leave for somebody that you love most, right? Um, but, but seriously, there's this idea of uh, it's just something that we are kind of squeamish about sometimes. But the problem is uh, our, our culture is not squeamish about sex at all. As a matter of fact, the culture is very, very happy to talk about sex, um, it's in most of the songs that you listen to, it's in the TV shows, and the movies, it's even in the half of the commercials, like it's everywhere that you look. And so if the church doesn't speak on sex, if God doesn't speak on sex, if we can't learn from the scriptures uh, how to conduct a relationship and, and what a healthy sexual relationship looks like, uh, then we're bound to be misinformed by the plenty of other sources of education that are out there. And so I think it's actually very significant that God ended up uh, deciding to uh, put this book into the Bible. And uh, I love what David Pawson, he's a a British preacher, uh, has to say about this. He said, um, Here in the middle of the Bible, God is affirming the love between a man and a woman. His inclusion of the Song of Songs within the Bible reminds us that sexuality is God's idea. He thought it up. Indeed, one of the biggest lies that the devil has spread around the world is that God is against sex and Satan is for it. The truth is the exact opposite. God is saying that sex is a clean and legitimate part of a married couple's love for one another. So man, God is uh, the creator of sex, okay? He's the one that not only created it, he decided that it would be necessary for life. Like, you guys wouldn't be here if not for sex, necessary part of the sustaining of life, right? And as weird as this might be for you to think about, um, not only did God sustain it, not only did God make it vital for our race, but uh, he also was the first one to command it. Um, you think about Adam and Eve, the, the first married couple, uh, what did God tell them? He told them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, I think that all of you are old enough by now to realize that you know how to being fruitful and multiplying works. <laughs> it requires a certain activity. Um, and, and so God is the designer of sex, is the creator of it. Uh, he, he's even the one that, that tells the first married couple to engage in this. So we need to throw out this idea that sex is some sort of dirty, nasty thing, and, and we need to replace it with a good and b- strong biblical, healthy view of how God designed it to be. And what is dirty and nasty and shameful and difficult and harmful is when we abuse that gift. Uh, The same as if we abuse any other kind of gift. But uh, circling back to this idea of the the Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, whatever you want to call it. um, We know a couple things from the title. And, And the first thing is that we know that this is a really good song okay? So when you see uh, Song of Songs, this is a Hebrew way of saying the best. So you think of uh, Jesus being described as King of Kings or Lord of Lords. Well, this is the Song of Songs. Uh, so there's <laughs> the very high opinion of what this song is, okay? Um, it, it was a, a chart topper. I know our montage didn't go back to 10th century BC, but if it did, I'm sure that this song would have been in the montage, um, The the other thing that we can know is that this song belongs to Solomon. Now, there's some debate as to whether or not Solomon actually wrote it, okay? It says that it is Solomon's song. Whether or not he wrote it, we're not sure. Uh, I think he probably did write it. I think this is the most simple explanation. Uh, But there are some reasons for why people think he might not have, Uh, mainly because his life doesn't match up with the things that the song is communicating, uh, which this, this uh, song, this poetry book, gives us a beautiful picture of a monogamous and committed relationship between a man and a woman. Uh, the problem is Solomon was anything but. Uh, he actually had 700 wives, and then uh, he also had 300 concubines. Um, so a lot of people kind of look at this and say, hey, maybe this guy didn't write that because it doesn't really seem like something you would do. Um, I understand the the reservation, but I do think that there's a few things that we need to remember for why it still could have been Solomon. And uh, the first is that this might have just been something that was written earlier in his life before he uh, kind of descended into a ton of polygamy. Um, The other thing that could have happened is uh, there's a chance that this is not even a personal experience of his. Um, We we don't know for sure, I mean, if if this is something that actually happened or, you know, is this a fictional story that's just describing these two lovers? We really don't know. We don't have that much information about it. So you could write a fictional story that's, of course, based in reality that gives you an idea of what a good uh, marriage relationship is supposed to look like without that being your own actual experience. Solomon was the wisest person that ever lived, and even though he did have a ton of wisdom, he unfortunately failed to apply that a lot of the time in his life, particularly in this area. Um, And then the third thing I would remember is that uh, God is no stranger to using broken people to speak wisdom, okay? And uh, if you look at your Bibles, most of it is written by people that had some sort of major flaw, okay? Like Moses was a murderer, David was an adulterer and a murderer. Um, you have even Paul, who even if you don't want to call him a murderer, he certainly was standing by giving approval of a lot of murder that was going on. Uh, and, and so, yeah, we basically see there's a lot of our Bibles written by people that are broken, but that God has done a work in their lives. He redeemed them, and, and he, he worked through them. And so um, whether or not Solomon wrote it, I really don't think is even the big deal. I think the big deal is that this book is in our Bible and uh, it's been in our Bible for a very, very long time. Both Jews and Christians agree that this is part of the canon of Scripture, and so God has something very important to communicate to us in the Song of Solomon. And so with that being said, uh, as I tried to figure out how to approach preaching through this book, I only have one sermon to be able to preach for you this morning, and it's an eight-chapter book, so it's hard to be able to cover all of that, So I'm going to kind of take a wide angle lens. Uh, We're not going to be able to walk through it verse by verse the way that I usually like to preach through passages. Uh, But instead, I've just kind of tried to zoom out a little bit and take a big picture look at this whole process of moving from uh, being attracted to somebody to dating somebody to marrying somebody and... uh, if you'll bear with me, I, I know that this is super corny, but I couldn't help myself. I'm going to help you uh, understand how to seal the C's of a relationship. So I have uh, six C's that I'm going to give you uh, that kind of relate. To, yeah, I know it's bad, um, but uh, I couldn't help myself. Uh, two C's for, for each idea, that attraction, uh, dating, and marriage. Um, so with that being said, I want to pray together. And then uh, we're going to dive into the scripture. God, we love you and we thank you so much for who you are. Um, We thank you that you have bought us. We thank you that um, you teach us so much through your word, God. We thank you that we we know that you're for our good. Uh, We know that everything that you teach us is for our good. And so, Lord, we want to be men and women that honor you with our lives. And so God, over this next time that we have together, just um, digging into your scripture, we pray that you would speak wisdom to us, that you would remove distractions from us, that you would give us the uh, courage and insight to be able to apply these things in our lives. Uh, Lord, we love you. We pray all this in your son's awesome name. Amen. Okay, so Song of Solomon. I'll be using Song of Songs and Song of Solomon interchangeably throughout this sermon. Chapter 1, we're going to read verses 2 through 6, since I already read verse 1 for you. Oh, and by the way, I didn't tell you the, the structure of this. Song of Solomon has some difficulties with interpretation to some degree. Uh, one, just because Hebrew poetry can be difficult to begin with. But two, uh, it's not always obvious who's even speaking in the song. Uh, so, you know, it's, there's clearly a man and a woman. I think there's also a chance that there are also some, like a third party, that's kind of onlooking on and like giving their input every now and then. But it's not like if you sat down and read a play where it's gonna say like a person's name and then all of their lines and then the next person's name, we don't get that. Um, So it's not always entirely easy to figure out who exactly is saying what. But I I do think there's still a ton that we can learn from this and uh, I'll do my best to give you my input on why I think certain people are saying certain things. All right, so starting off here, we have the, the female speaking. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine, your oils have a pleasing fragrance, your name is like purified oil, therefore the maidens love you. Draw me after you and let us run together, the king has brought me into his chambers. We will rejoice in you and be glad, we will extol your love more than wine, rightly do they love you. I am black but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kadar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not stare at me because I am swarthy. For the sun has burned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me caretaker of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Okay, I want to stop here and talk a little bit about attraction. Um, What is it that we should be looking for in the type of person that we want to be pursuing in the first place? And I love what we learned just here in these first six verses. We see something about the guy, the way that she speaks of him, what does she say? She says that his name is like purified oil. Now, this is significant. A person's name, she's not saying, oh man, you have a really cool name and I want it to be my last name. Like I know some of you girls might maybe have like a, you think your name would sound way cooler if it got paired with a certain last name. I don't know, that's not what she's talking about here. Um, When when she's talking about his name being like purified oil, she's uh, referring to his character. She's saying, man, the the reputation that you have, the way that people think of you when they see you or when they hear about you is positive. They think about you the way that that, uh, you have value. You're bringing value to people's lives. Your your name is like purified oil. See, purified oil was actually really important and really expensive in this time, Uh, especially in this culture. The uh, olive oil is used a lot, uh, both for cooking and they would also use it for their lamps. And Purified olive oil, when you, when you smash an olive and start to extract the oil from it, the first time that you do that, you get what's called extra virgin olive oil. It's the best oil that there is. And then you can do that again, and you can get virgin olive oil, which is still pretty good. You can still cook with it and stuff. It's not quite as good as the extra virgin. And then you can do this again, and you can get more oil out of it, but it's going to be more like crude olive oil. It's not, it's not really as good for uh, cooking or anything like that. You can use it for lamps, um, but you're probably not going to eat it. Now, this extra virgin, that first purified oil, uh, not only was that the best stuff to eat, but it was also what they would use in the temple for the lamps there. Saying, hey, this is the first fruits. We want to give the very best to what God has. And so this was expensive, good stuff. And she's saying, your name is like that. When people think of you, they're thinking of a valuable man. They're thinking of somebody who uh, has a good reputation, and and people rightly think highly of you. And... uh, Verse 3, she even says, uh, therefore the maidens love you. And then verse 4, the second part of it, I think that this is a third party that's looking in on here. We will rejoice and be glad. We'll rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I think there's a third party looking in that's actually celebrating the love of this couple. Okay? And so this man. Uh, has such a good name the these basically it's like her girlfriends looking and saying yeah that's a good guy like we're, we're glad that you're dating him you know so it's this this kind of guy girls you want to be attracted to a man uh, that when you start to pursue him your girlfriends a- approve yeah that's that that's definitely a good guy we like him he's the kind of person that you should be pursuing rightly do the maidens love you now the woman in this story she also has good character and this is primarily shown here in this uh, through her work ethic, uh, we see that this is a, a hardworking woman. She was out uh, tending the vineyards, and um, I just want to say that the Bible consistently speaks highly of hardworking women that aren't afraid to get their hands dirty. Um, I, we kind of sometimes have this like princess mentality, like we want to encourage our girls to be princesses and and uh, you know not do any work with their hands or anything like that. But uh, the scriptures are consistently speaking highly of uh, women that are willing to, to work hard. And that's exactly what this woman does. If you go to Proverbs 31, which is uh, the book of Proverbs kind of ends with this description of a virtuous woman. And it hits on this several times in that chapter, but just a sample. Proverbs 31:17 through 18 says, she girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. Proverbs 31, 27 says, She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Um, There's something to be said for a woman that has high work ethic, that says a lot about her character. And uh, I I would say, like, when I was uh, getting attracted to Cassie, this is, if you know my wife Cassie, I'm going to be bragging on her a lot, by the way, today, so she's right here if you want to make her feel uncomfortable uh, by by looking at her. Uh, But she's an awesome woman, and if you know her, um, you know that she has really good work ethic and it does not matter what she's doing like she is going to do an awesome job with it and uh, she's instantly popular with her employers and coworkers, whatever job it is that she has because they know that she's going to do a good job with it. She used to work at Starbucks here on campus and they like wanted to raise her up the ranks as quickly as possible and because she was just doing such a good job uh, w- with making the coffees there you know what does I don't care if I'm making a latte I'm going to do a good job with making the latte. Um, and now she works over at the Corrieville Rec Center and her coworkers love her there and, and, and the people are so happy to have her because they know uh, that she's going to work hard and do a good job with what she's given. And uh, this is the kind of person that you want to be with, somebody that uh, cares about the things that they do, that takes pride in the work that they have. So if you're thinking about the people that you're attracted to, do you see that kind of work ethic? You know, how, is, how does this person handle their schoolwork? Do they blow it off or do they take it seriously? Um, you know, how, how is it, what's their work ethic? Even with like, Things like serving in the church. You know, do, do they work hard or are they kind of just a, a a consumer? What is it that uh, this this person's work ethic says about their character in their life? This is an important thing. Now, the other thing that I see here uh, about um, what, the kind of person that we should be attracted to is not only do we want to have a person that has good character, but we want to have someone that's confident. And, and I mean that primarily they're, they're confident in their identity. Look at what she says in, uh, I think it's verse five, she says, I am black but lovely. Now, uh, this is a culture where fair skin is seen to be more beautiful than dark skin, and this girl, because she's a hard worker, she's out in the vineyard, she's getting tanned and stuff. It's not like our culture where people go out and try to get tan all the time. This is the opposite. They're trying to stop themselves from getting tan, and so she's, she realizes, yeah, I'm black but I'm lovely. I'm dark but she, she doesn't care about what the cultural beauty standards are. She has a better understanding of the fact that she's a beautiful woman, regardless of whether or not the culture may say that she is. And I think this goes for both guys and girls, but girls especially, I just want to speak to you, to not let the culture be what defines beauty for you. Like, God has already made you beautiful. He has made you in his image. You are his daughter and you don't need to feel like you have to go and strive to meet some sort of standard that our culture has set that you're never actually going to be able to meet. Nobody ever feels like they're actually at that spot. You're always going to be able to find something that's wrong with your hair or you know you're too fat or you're too skinny or your fingernails aren't the right color or something like that. You know there's there's just endless problems And, and I'm telling you trying to figure out how to be perfectly beautiful and all those kind of things is never going to actually make you beautiful what's going to make you way more beautiful is to actually be confident in the woman that you are and realizing that man I don't need to be changing myself all the time to be able to try and make myself likable or or worthy for the world and when I uh Started to get with Cassie, and this doesn't just go for for, uh, physical stuff, by the way. I mean, I'm talking about the essence of who you are, the personality that God's given you, uh, the intelligence you have, all these kind of things, that you can become secure in those things. One of the reasons why I knew I wanted to date Cassie, and even once we started dating, why it was a very easy decision to pretty quickly get married, uh, was because of this. I saw that she was confident in who she is. Um, I never for a second got a sense that she was trying to be somebody else to get me to like her like I can sniff that stuff out from a mile away and it's a huge turnoff like and unfortunately um, I think that it's a super common thing because we're so insecure in ourselves that we feel like we have to change ourselves to get a certain person to like us you know whether that's the way that we look whether it's changing our personality changing our hobbies whatever it may be and I never for a second felt like she was trying to do any of that kind of stuff and she just wanted to be who she was. And, and I fell in love with that woman, like exactly who she is. And the cool thing too is that um, she had this, the same expectation of me. She didn't want me to change. You know, she, she wasn't looking at me as a project to try and change me or anything like that. It was just she loved me for the man that I am. And I knew that. I had full confidence in that. And I'll tell you, that is where dating starts to get really fun. Is where you're able to realize that you guys just really, truly enjoy and appreciate the person that each other like the other person, who they actually are. You don't feel like you have to put on a front or or be a certain way uh, with this person all the time. And that's also going to be what helps lead you to having a better marriage because you're not going to be able to put up a front forever in your marriage either. So you need to be comfortable with who you are and you need to get comfortable with who the other person is. Now, all this being said about confidence, I think there's a, a difference between worldly confidence and godly confidence, Um, Worldly confidence, you know, you you put your confidence in a lot of things that you may be good at or whatever else, um, and all those things can be stripped away and torn down. Godly confidence is rooted in something stable, and it's never going to be able to be taken away from you. I love what Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Let your confidence be in God. Don't boast in all this other stupid stuff that the world likes to boast about. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. And so, ladies and gentlemen, like as you guys uh, look to, to seek and trying to become confident people it starts in rooting your relationship with the Lord and knowing that you know him and letting him speak truth to you about who you are and that will start to weed out a lot of these insecurities now there's a lot more that I could say about attraction uh, but I want to get on to the practice of dating but before I do that I want to um, just kind of give you this analogy about uh, fishing and, and how it relates to attraction do, do any of you guys like fishing in here yeah, a few fishes. okay. I don't like fishing. I grew up with a pond in my backyard, so I always had access to fishing, but it was never really something that I got into. Uh, my father-in-law loves fishing, and my brother loves fishing, and, uh, but it's, it's not something that, I'm, something that I'm, re- I'm really into. But I do at least know this about fishing, that the kind of bait that you use is going to affect the kind of fish that you're able to catch, all right? Uh, when I grew up fishing with that pond in my backyard, the only thing I would ever catch are these little bluegill. And uh, the only thing I ever fished with was a worm. And uh, I, I, my family goes down to Alabama on the Gulf Shores every other year. And my brother is always so excited to go down there. And the reason is because he just wants to fish on the beach all day. But when he's fishing, he's not fishing for bluegill. Uh, he's fishing for sharks. And uh, he's not using worms. I'll tell you that. He goes down there and uh, he goes and he gets this special bait from the bait shop that he's always excited to go to. And, and he's, and he catches his sharks. You know, he, He's able to do it, but he's only able to do it because he's using the right bait. And I think that there's a lot that can be said to this with the way that uh, the, the bait we fish with, so to speak, in terms of attraction. You see, if you use the wrong bait, you're gonna attract the wrong kind of fish. So if you use your body as the bait that you're fishing with, you're gonna attract some fish, but they're gonna be bluegill. They're not gonna be sharks, okay? They're, they're, they're not gonna be the kind of fish that you're looking for. And when I talk about fishing with your body, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about guys that have the uh, the profile pics with the, their shirts off and, you know, are holding the, the shirt up with the abs or whatever it may be. Uh, you know, th- that kind of thing. Man, that, that may attract a certain kind of fish, but that's not the one that you want to attract, okay? Uh, and, and girls, same for you. You know, if all your profile pictures, you're in a bikini or Uh, You know, you find yourself wearing tight, revealing clothing and stuff all the time. That's going to attract a certain fish, but I I would say it's not the kind that you want. Um, And, you know, as a matter of fact, godly men and women have actually trained themselves not only to not bite on that, but to flee from that. Uh, I I love this in 2 Timothy 2.22. It says, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. All right? So the righteous men, as they've trained their their minds this way and they see you fishing with that bait, they're not only going to not bite, they're going to flee. All right? They want to go the exact opposite direction. I love this proverb. Proverbs 11.22 says, Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. <laughs> um, and I think that's a great picture. That's actually been a really helpful proverb for me in my life. Um, to, to really think about that is, man, the times in my life where I have walked in the greatest purity have been times where I've really taken that proverb to heart. Where it was like, I didn't, it doesn't matter how pretty a girl is. If I can tell that she lacks discretion because, you know, she's trying to attract people with her body or trying to act stupid to get attention or whatever it may be, man, I'm not interested you know that's I'm not that's not my bait um and the cool thing about this too is that if you start to fish with the right bait it'll have the opposite effect if you start to fish with the right bait with your godliness godly men are going to start being attracted to that and conversely the losers they're not going to be interested in that (laughs) you know they may think you're pretty at first and then they realize that they're not going to get anything from you they're going to go move on to another hook um, but the, the reality is, man, godly people are attracted to godliness. And so the bottom line here is that um, godliness is more attractive than anything else. I love, I love this in Proverbs thirty one thirty It says, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Charm can fool you. It's nice. It's fun, but it can hide some things. It can make you t- tend to overlook some things. Beauty, it's good, it's fine. Like, th- th- by the way, I'm not telling you you should like, try to make yourself ugly or anything. It's not, I, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be beautiful. You know, I, there's nothing wrong with doing your makeup or working out or anything like that. Uh, what I'm saying is if that's the thing that you're using to try to attract people, that's what you're putting your value and your identity in, and, and that's what you're using to try and find people that want to date you, then I think that that's a mistake. Um, That stuff is fleeting. You know, nothing wrong with it, but beauty is fleeting. As uh, there's a pastor I like to listen to, his name's Matt Chandler, and he says, uh, quite simply, gravity wins in this area. You know, like, you guys are all young right now. You're pretty good looking. Uh, There's a day that's going to come where you're going to start to sag. All of you, is going to start to sag. (laughs) Because gravity takes its toll. And, uh, you know... Beauty, it's it's fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And so we go back to this idea, man. Godliness is what you should actually be after, both in cultivating in yourself and in finding in other people. All right, let's move on to dating. Uh, the The term dating is never actually used in the Bible, but there's a ton of biblical principles that we can pull out to help us understand how to date better, and. Uh, The first thing I'm going to look at here is communication. And in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 7, the very next verse after what we were reading before, says this. "'Tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions?' So here we have the lady telling the man, hey, I want to know uh, where it is that you pasture your flocks. So first off, and this isn't really my main point, but just a side point, it is good to communicate with each other just the logistics of your daily operations, <laughs> especially if you're married, figure that stuff out. Uh, you know, Communicate your, your daily lives, your daily comings and goings. Um, but the, the bigger thing I want to hit on is actually the second part of that verse where she says, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions. What she's saying here, uh, one who veils herself beside the flocks, that, that's a term, she's talking about a prostitute, okay? Uh, you see in Genesis chapter 38, uh, Tamar dresses up as a prostitute and goes and gets Judah to sleep with her on the side of the road. There's this, uh, that, that's the way that a prostitute would dress. She said, that's not who I'm gonna be. I wanna be very clear to you about what our relationship is. I don't wanna be like one who veils myself besides your flocks. And so when it comes to a dating relationship, I think that we can learn uh, it's important for you guys to communicate about what the expectations of the relationship are. You know, uh, don't, don't let it be something where one of you thinks a certain way, another one thinks that it's not. And I'm not saying the guy thought this, but I love how she says, hey, this is, this is not who I'm going to be. And so you need to realize when you go into a dating relationship, what is it that you're looking for and who are you guys going to be in that dating relationship? Now, I don't think that there's anything wrong with, like, going on a few fun dates, you know, out for ice cream or whatever without, like, labeling yourself boyfriend or girlfriend. That's fine. You go out and get to know each other. But when you start going out on dates consistently and you're texting each other at midnight, you know, all those kind of things, um, and you start to realize, okay, something is, is picking up and happening here, then you guys need to communicate clearly about that. And, guys, this, this is specifically on you that I'm talking about. Um, don't let your girl just sit there in confusion and ambiguity, and not knowing what's going on in the relationship. Are we boyfriend and girlfriend? Are we dating? Are we just talking? Are we, like, I don't I don't even know all the terms that you guys have anymore for all of these different stages and what they mean and and all these. But you guys just be be clear about what it, what your relationship is and what the expectations are. Um, I never left Cassie in the dark in our dating process, and she'll, t- she'll tell you this. Uh, when we started to... So we met each other playing Ultimate Frisbee. We kind of just started to become friends through playing sports and stuff together, and I started to notice her godliness. I started to notice the way she loved other people and how uh, she was praying. And she would be asking me to pray for, her for z- different things. And so we uh, started to spend some more time together, and it, it started to become pretty clear that this was turning into more than a friendship. And uh, there was one night that she got hit in the head with a softball On a liner back when she was pitching. Um, So I ended up kind of having to take care of her for for a a while that night because I think she had a concussion. And uh, it it became very clear that night that this was more than a friendship. And so I remember when I drove her back to UPA to to drop her off for the night, I told her, hey, so I think you know this, but I like you. And there's something I have to do before I can ask you out. Um, and that was just, I, I had to talk to her parents because I was on staff with the church. She was a student in our church and so we have a policy, you know, if you're going to date a student, you have to get permission from their parents. Um, so I did that quickly and went up and, and got dinner with her parents. It was actually her mom's birthday. Um, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I was an early birthday. They were getting a son-in-law in the future. They didn't know that. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, hung out with her parents for like three hours and, and ate some pizza <coughs> and, uh, it was, it was great. Her dad gave me permission in like the first five minutes, and then I just enjoyed hanging out with them. Um, I still do. But uh, anyway, so, you know, I came back the next day, and I took her out, and, and I asked her to, you know, hey, I want you to be my girlfriend. Um, and it was clear what, what our expectations were for the relationship. That at that point, we were in a committed relationship to each other. And uh, with that, that relationship, I think the other major thing we want to look here in dating is not just being clear about communicating what your expectations are, um, but also you need to consecrate your relationship. And by consecration, uh, this, consecration just means to set something apart as sacred, to devote it to the Lord, okay? And so our, as a Christian, your whole life should actually be consecrated to the Lord. <clears throat> look at what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians three seventeen. He says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. You see, when you become a Christian, you die to yourself and you're raised to life with Christ, and now he is the center of everything that you do. So your whole life is consecrated to him, and your dating relationship should be no different. When you decide that you're going to enter into a dating relationship with another person, then it's imperative that you understand, hey, we want to enter into this relationship in a way that's going to honor the Lord. And so what, what does that mean? Well, one thing I think it means is that you need to be people that are constantly pushing each other towards Jesus. You know, are you helping to uh, encourage one another? Are you helping uh, to, to build the other person up? Are you helping in ministry? Are you guys uh, strengthening each other in the way that you're able to minister to other people? Are you, or are you going to be one of those couples that kind of just disappears off the map and no one sees you guys again until you finally break up? That, that's not consecrating your relationship to the Lord, um, so, so there, there's a lot of things that you can do for that. Um, but one of the other ways I think that's very significant is not only that you push each other towards God and help each other grow in godliness, but you also need to be uh, responsible enough to help protect each other from sin. And, and this primarily comes in the area of sexual purity, because let's face it, when you're dating somebody, it, it's, you're sexually attracted to them. And that's just the reality of it. Like, you don't have to deny that. Of course you're attracted to the person. There's going to be plenty of times uh, where you want to do some things that would be ungodly. And so I want to actually look at Song of Solomon 2, 5 through 7. This is the uh, woman speaking here. She says, Sustain me with raisin cakes. Refresh me with apples, because I am lovesick. Let his left hand be under my head, and his right hand embrace me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Okay, so I told you Song of Solomon can get a little bit juicy. Um, but what, what's going on here is that, uh, like, for lack of a better term, she's horny. Like, she, she, she wants him here, okay? Right? She's saying, hey, let his, let his left hand be under my head. Let his right hand embrace me. She, she's talking about raisin cakes and apples. and. Uh, <laughs> now, just to give you an idea there, now, this is a 3,000-year-old poem. In this time, raisin cakes and apples were seen as aphrodisiacs, as uh, uh, could anything that had seeds in it, that, and, and that's just something that was designed to kind of uh, increase sexual arousal, okay? So she's getting hot, and she's saying, I, I, I want him, I want him, um, And and the reality is like, man, those of you that that have been in dating relationships, you've had these thoughts before, right? And so this is why verse seven is important. And I don't know who's speaking here. I don't know if she's saying this to herself or I don't know if her man is saying this to her. Um, But it says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. And I think that the principle that we get here is although she wants a certain thing, there has to be this step back and saying, no, 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 don't awaken this until it's time, okay, it, it's, it's not time, even though this is what I want, it's not time to awaken this, it hasn't, it's, it's not pleasing yet, I think that's what's trying to be communicated here, and so if this is her stepping back and saying that, that's good, that means that she has a certain level of self-control to realize, no, I, I'm, I'm not going to go there yet, this is not the right time, or if it's her man that's saying this, then that's good, that's a godly man, that's able to step up and say, no, we decided that we wanted to consecrate this relationship to the Lord, and even though I have an opportunity right now in a moment where you're, where you're being weak, I'm gonna protect us and continue to lead us in purity. And that's the kind of person that you wanna be with is that you say, yeah, we wanna consecrate this relationship to the Lord, and as I talked about pushing each other closer to the Lord, that when you find yourself in these times of weaknesses, that you're able to step back and say, no, 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 we said we're gonna honor the Lord with this relationship, And both of you need to be committed to that because I think there's going to be times where both of you are looking for raisin cakes. Hopefully it's just at separate times. Now, I want you guys to realize this. As I said at the beginning of the sermon, sex is a good godly thing. It's his idea. He is not trying to rob your joy by telling you not to have sex outside of marriage. Okay, God doesn't, God doesn't give us commandments that are intended to rob our joy. They don't always make sense to us, and sometimes it feels like that's what's happening. But I guarantee you, if God told you something, he's doing it because he wants your good. He's doing it to try to protect you. And so, uh, specifically with this area, it can become really hard to trust God when everything in you wants to just have sex right now. Okay, I dated the, uh, the same girl for three years in high school, and... Uh, I'll tell you, there were, there were some times where I wanted raisin cakes, but uh, it, it's, praise God that, that both of us were committed to saying, no, 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 we want this relationship to be godly and glorifying to the Lord, and so in those times, we were able to stop and say, no, this is not what we're going to do, and I will tell you, during that time, I, I really didn't fully understand why that was important. You know, everybody else around me is doing something different. I want to do something different. The only thing that sustained me in purity there was realizing, well, I trust God and I believe him. So I'm going to do what he says even if I don't understand it right now. And now that I have a little bit more perspective, I do understand it a lot more. I'm not saying I understand it perfectly, but I can totally see there are a lot of really, really, really good reasons why God wants to protect us from having sex outside of marriage. And just to give you a few of them, the first thing I would say is that... um, if, if you remain pure before, uh, before your wedding, it's going to strengthen your marriage uh, because it's not going to allow any room for comparison. You know, when, you, when you're sleeping with other people and you have other experiences to compare and stuff, uh, there's a possibility that those comparisons are going to be brought into your marriage. And so, you know, every time you're sleeping with your spouse, you're going to be, you know, there, there's going to be temptation to be thinking about how this compares against others. And so, you know, with Cass and I, praise God, Um, Neither of us had had sex before marriage, and she's consistently thanked me that um, this is something that she knows, hey, this is something that's special between us that only we've shared, and and I don't have to worry about comparison or that kind of thing. Um, Now, for I know a lot of you guys, like, it's already too late, There's, there's totally been many bridges that have been crossed, and I want you to hear me on this, like, God can redeem that. And God has forgiven you of your sin, and, and, and I don't want you to continue to sit in shame and guilt and feel like you've destroyed everything. God is a master at working, uh, at fixing broken things and making beautiful things come out of bad situations. Um, but I also just want to be straight with you that sometimes sin, sin leaves scars, and so even though God redeems, he's trying to save you from some of these scars that you may end up carrying. Um, I also would say that this choosing to not have sex before marriage is gonna save you from some really messy breakups. Because when you choose to make a relationship sexual, you're choosing to deepen that relationship on a physical level way beyond where you are in the other areas and way beyond the commitment that you're actually ready to give to the other person. And so then when the time comes to break up, it's gonna be that much harder to sever the relationship because you've connected with this person in such a meaningful way. And so you're making your breakup 100 times harder if you've chosen to do this. And finally, I would also say, um, that this keeps it special and unique between you and your spouse. I like to ask people this question sometimes uh, Why do diamonds cost more than water? Does anyone know? They're more scarce, right? Like, they're certainly not more valuable. Like, I, diamonds are totally unnecessary in life. Like, they really, you don't need them at all. Um, water is very necessary, like you're gonna die without it, yet, the sec- yet we can, like water is so cheap, we give it away for free at water fountains and all the buildings and everything. Um, and, and diamonds cost so much money, you'll figure that out if you buy an engagement ring. Um, and it, it's funny, the, the reason that the price difference is there is because of the scarcity. The, the diamond is unique, it's rare. And, and the thing is, this is the, the same with, with sex. As, as your, if your sex is scarce, and I don't mean within the marriage, let it be abundant within the marriage, but I mean scarce in terms of who has access to it, then you give it a certain value. It's special. Um, if it starts to just be distributed and given out freely, like water, it starts to cheapen the value of it. And so you're not able to experience the same kind of depth together. So I would kind of like to look at sex as being something almost like a fire. Like, I, I love fire. Does anyone else love fire? I love fire. I love fireplaces. Um, I, I grew up, my house had three fireplaces in it growing up. Um, and I wish I could have a fireplace in my house now, but it's just not feasible with the house I have. And so I compromised and got an electric fireplace this Christmas, which is pretty cool. It's a nice, it's a nice backup. It's a little more convenient. Um, but it still doesn't really replace a real fire. But nonetheless, it's the best I could do. But with a fireplace, it's, it's great, right? Because there's this idea of you get to bring the warmth and the power and the beauty and everything of a fire right into your home, um, but it's not causing any problems it's, it, when it's contained exactly in the place where it should be. Now, if that fire starts to expand outside of that fireplace, it goes from being something that's beauty, beautiful and cozy and warm and comforting to something that's incredibly destructive. And I think that sex is much the same way. When it's kept in the right place, it's a wonderful, amazing gift when it's spread out beyond where it's supposed to go, it has the opportunity to do quite a bit of damage. Now, I want to uh, just say one final word here about dating and this idea of being consecrated to the Lord, which is if your relationship is consecrated to the Lord, I feel like this almost goes without saying, but I, I still think it's, I need to say it because of what I've observed. Um, it is impossible to have a relationship that is consecrated to the Lord if both of you are not pursuing Him, okay? Okay. And so if your life is all about Jesus, if he said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, then how is it that it would make any sense to link up with another person that doesn't even love that same God? There's no way in which that person can support you in that. I'm not saying that they're going to try and like actively take you away or anything like that. I'm just saying they're not going to be praying with you. They're not going to be pursuing uh, your godliness. They're not going to be help point, helping pointing out the places where you need to grow. They're not going to be able to be ministering to you together. You're not going to have the same joy of giving to the church and other missions uh, with, with, if you ever get married and share finances. You, there's so many things in which you're just not going to be able to support each other together in, in uh, pursuing the Lord. And so the only way that you're really going to have a a relationship that's consecrated to the Lord, the only way it's really going to make any sense to pursue Him is to partner up with somebody else that's pursuing Him that same way. Okay, so I I feel like that almost goes without saying, but uh, I think that's very, very important. All right, finally, let's move on to marriage. I don't have a ton of time here to talk about marriage, um, but the good news is I've already told you a bunch of good stuff that you can actually just choose to continue applying in your marriage. You know, I've already talked about the kind of person that has good character and good courage. Yeah, that's the kind of person that you want to marry. Have good communication, continue that into your marriage. Uh, Consecration, yeah, continue to have a marriage that's consecrated to the Lord. But there are two major things that change, very huge differences between marriage and dating. And uh, the first one, the C is consummation. So uh, your, your relationship is still consecrated to the Lord but now you get to consummate it with each other, a.k.a. have sex. Um, th- this is an awesome and, and beautiful perk of marriage. And I want you to look at this even in Song of Solomon 4, uh, verse 12. At this point, the, the couple was married because we see in verse 12, it says, A garden locked, this is the man speaking, A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A rock garden locked, a spring sealed up. And then he gives some more description. I'm just going to skip down to verse 16. It says, This is her response. Awake, O north wind, and come, wind of the south. Make my garden breathe out fragrance. Let its spices be wafted abroad. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. Okay. So I think that you know what's going on there. He's coming into his garden and eating its choice fruits. Uh, He is consummating that marriage. Um, And this is a beautiful thing. This is uh, sex that's able to be had in the context of two people that love each other and trust each other. You see, when you marry somebody, you're, the, the reason why it now makes sense for you to have sex with each other is because you're committing to each other on the deepest level of every part of who you are. You know, you're saying, I'm fully committing to you emotionally, I'm committing to you spiritually, I'm committing to you financially, I'm committing to you with every bit of who I am. And so now it makes sense to let the physical match that. But so, so now it makes sense to venture into that territory of, hey, the deepest way that I can express my physical connection to you through sex, now you can do that without lying and, and what that, that act is communicating. But if you're not there, if you're not married yet, you're not really ready to have this same full kind of commitment to one another, then you're not ready to have sex with each other. And don't do that thing where it's like, oh, well, we will be married eventually. It's just, We're married in God's eyes. We're just not actually married yet. That's not true. Until you actually have made that commitment don't fool yourself into thinking you're more committed than you actually are and so this is the beauty here of sex within a loving and committed uh, marriage and this is awesome because now you're able to trust each other on a level that you've never been able to trust sex is not a performance you don't have to be self-conscious about it you don't have to worry is this person going to leave me if they don't like me a certain way I am you have entered into a covenant with someone where you're going to build your life together it's a lot easier to build your life with somebody who you can trust is not going to be walking out the back door a year from now. That kind of leads me to my second thing in marriage, which the major thing that changes is not just the consummation, but the commitment. You see, with dating, there's a certain level of commitment, but it's a a pretty low level of commitment. You need to, to express to each other what that level of commitment is. But you're not married. Like, you can walk out. You can walk out at any time for any reason that you want. With marriage, you can't there's no walking out of it. Divorce is not really an option for the Christian. Uh, Marriage is till death do us part. Uh, Look at what Jesus had to say about marriage. There was a time when the Pharisees were asking him if it was okay to get a divorce, and uh, they were referencing the fact that Moses said, hey, you can give your wife a certificate of divorce, and this is what Jesus said. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. This is, a, this is a tough, like difficult, heavy teaching, but I think that the implication is clear here. Jesus is helping us realize when you marry somebody, God has joined you together. You have become one flesh. No, let, let no man separate that. And you know, his disciples naturally were having a hard time, so they go and they ask him later in the house for some clarifying questions. Well, wait a second, what about this? And he doesn't change the answer. He really lays it out. If, if you divorce your wife and you marry another woman, you're committing adultery. If she divorces you, she marries another man, she's committing adultery. What, what can we imply from that? The reason the adultery is happening is because she's still actually married to you. That the, the marriage hasn't actually been put asunder, even though governmentally maybe you can separate or that. Um, the, the fact of the matter is, God has joined you guys together. This is a very, very, very serious commitment. And I think that we don't understand that all the time. When you decide that you're going to marry somebody, you have to realize this that you're saying, I am sticking with you until one of us dies. That is the only way out of this covenant. There is no back door. And, and man, like, may we be men and women that, that approach marriage with that kind of seriousness. And, and may that be something that uh, maybe even scares you a little bit. It is kind of scary on the front end, but I'll tell you what, it's also really reassuring. Because if you marry somebody like that, then you know, hey, I can trust this person. Like, that, this person is not going to give up on me. We are, we are resolved to uh, reconciling any differences there may be. There is no such thing as irreconcilable differences. We will find a way because we have to. People always find a way when they have to. Well, not always, most of the time. They find a way when they have to. But people give up when they think that there's an escape hatch. So the Bible is very, very serious about the commitment of marriage. And we as Christians need to take that more seriously. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them comes down to that trust I talked about with building the life together. But the other one I would say is this. Well, there's a lot, but the last one I'll give you. Is that your marriage is an illustration of the union between Christ and his church. God has designed marriage to teach the world a lesson that he has brought us together with himself. So I'm going to read a passage from Ephesians chapter 5. It's, it's about 10 verses, kind of long. I'm not going to have time to explain all of it. But what I want you to do as I'm reading this is look at all of these ways that Paul is comparing marriage to the union between Christ and the church. Here's what he says. <clears throat> Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Okay, so notice as Paul is explaining to the church in Ephesus, this is one of the best passages in the Bible we have on marriage. He's helping them. He's constantly relating it back to Christ in the church. And this whole thing that we saw Jesus talk earlier about, even this idea of the two becoming one flesh, Paul says, hey, this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ in the church. I want you to think about that for a second. This kind of union that I was talking about, this serious, unbreakable union that you enter into with your spouse, Paul's saying, hey, you know what you can really learn from that? this is about Christ and his church. He is so intimately connected with you that you become one flesh. You see, the, the Bible constantly talks about this concept of being in Christ, united with Christ. The Bible talks about us becoming a new creation We're raised to life with Christ, and we are united with him in a way that is so deep and so intimate and so spiritual and so permanent that I I don't really feel like I can adequately explain it to you. But Paul's helping us to realize, hey, what you see in marriage, the way that two people become connected there, that's something that's giving us a glimpse. It's designed to be something that gives us a glimpse of the way that Christ connects with his church. And so do you see why it's so important for us as Christians to take our marriages seriously and the way that we are unified with each other? Because when the world sees our marriages, they should see the union between Christ and his church. When they see the way that a wife loves her husband and that she trusts his leadership and, and gets behind him and supports him and everything, that they, they see the way that the church says, Yes, I trust Jesus. I'm following him wherever he leads me. I rejoice over him. I'm, I'm going to do the, the things that he says. You see that they should be able to see this this connection of, oh my goodness, this is the connection between Christ and the church. And when they see the way that that husband loves his wife, gives himself up for her, sacrifices for her, puts her above himself, does all of these kind of things as a servant for her, that they see, oh my goodness, that's the way that Jesus loves us? Your marriage starts to paint a picture for people of what this, this awesome Christian relationship with our Lord looks like. And here's what's amazing about this. Jesus is our perfect husband. You see, when it talks about that he uh, sacrificed himself so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. This is why Jesus hung on the cross for you. Because there is never a way that you could make yourself holy and blameless. You can clean yourself up as best you can, all you want. You are never going to be able to get rid of all those sins. I don't care how many prayers you say. I don't care how many good deeds you do. I don't care how much money you give. You cannot make yourself holy and blameless. No matter how many good things you do in the future, you've still got all the stuff you've done in the past. And I'd be willing to bet you're probably going to make more mistakes in the future too. And so if we're going to be his bride without blemish, perfect, holy, without stain, then what's he going to do? Well, there's only one thing that can be done. He's going to have to wash us. And so Jesus Christ comes and he walks in this earth and he takes on flesh and he dies on the cross for our sins. And as he's dying on the cross for our sins, the wrath of God, the punishment for our sins is being poured out on him. And so that we who could not clean ourselves as we put our faith in Jesus Christ are cleaned by him. Because he says, all that sin that was cleaning you up, I took that on me and I took God's punishment. And because of that, here's the thing, it's not just the removal of your sins. There's a removal of your sins for a purpose so that we could be his bride or brought to him. He says, I want to unite with you that way. I want you to be with me for eternity. I will love you, protect you, care for you. I've removed your sins, not just so I could say, hey, good job, now do better in the future now that you've got a fresh start, but so that you could be with me for eternity. Have an awesome, awesome God. So, in conclusion, here, wherever you are in this whole relationship thing, I know some of you guys in this room are single, very single, not interested. You're happy being single. That's fine, by the way. You don't have to want a relationship. That's totally cool. Still a lot you can learn from marriage and and these kind of illustrations, but that's totally cool if you want to be single, it's a good thing. Uh, but for some of you, you know, you, you kind of like to be in a relationship, and, and you need to be thinking about the kind of person you're attracted to. Look for character. You know, look for, look for confidence. And also exhibit those things in yourself. Work on your own character. Work on your own confidence in your identity in Christ. If you're dating somebody, work on your communication. You know, continue to learn how to communicate well with each other, your expectations. And uh, make sure that your relationship is consecrated to the Lord. Continually be pushing people towards Jesus and protecting each other from sin. And finally, if you're married um, or moving towards marriage or whatever, know like, hey, sex is a good and wonderful thing that is enjoyed within the bounds of that, that you get the privilege to consummate that. um, And that also there is a commitment, a very, very strong commitment to one another till death do us part. I love you guys, and uh, I'm excited to see what God will continue to do in your lives as you progress down this. Let's pray together. Um, God, we love you, and we thank you so much for who you are. Uh, We thank you that you've made us your bride. God, we thank you um, that you've washed us and made us clean, and that you present us to you as a bride without blemish. And so, God, if if there is some of us in this room, even this morning, maybe that are uh, feeling like we have those blemishes, or uh, we feel like we can't escape the sins of our past, I pray that you would remind us uh, that, that you already poured yourself out for us, and although we were a dirty bride, that you've made us a clean one. And God, we also ask just for um, your guidance moving forward, that we would be men and women that consecrate our whole lives to you, and that our, our dating relationships would be no different. God, we pray for this church and and our futures. God, I pray that the men and women in this room would have strong marriages that they enter into that last all the way until death. We love you, Lord. We thank you for who you are. And we pray all this in your son's awesome name. Amen.